I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Josh Adler on the show today of the Paris Wine Company. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, Levy. Thanks for having me over here. Nice to have you here. So you were a liberal arts guy in, in Oberlin back in the day. Dual major in English and art history. Going for the big bucks. Exactly. That was the plan. <laughs> and where did that lead you? Well, it led me to the wine business eventually, but I wouldn't say directly. So I think like a lot of people in the wine business, right? You start off on one path and then something happens and, and you veer in another. So actually, originally, was I thought I'd be a museum curator. So I had a summer internship at a museum in New York City called the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I've heard of that one. I've heard of it. Yeah, it's big. And I had an interesting internship. It was in the Department of Photographs. So that was sort of my specialty in, in, in school. So I did that for a summer, and, and I was living in Williamsburg. This was in 2000. Well, so ahead I, of the game I was on li- that. I was living in a loft with a bunch of artists in Williamsburg. And working at maybe the you're what made it cool, you know. Because now that's the dream. But right then I there. left, and so <laughs> <laughs> you could see how it goes. But no, I was working at the Met, and it's not, it just didn't feel right to me. You know, I, I don't know whether that was just me being young and being like I don't like going to a job, but I think it was the, just the vibe didn't really fit with what I thought it was going to be or what I wanted it to be. And so I did that for the summer and sort of came out, graduated. I was kind of like oh, I thought I wanted to do that, but actually I think that's not what I want to do. So at the same time, I was really into traveling. I wanted to get out of the country, live somewhere else. So I moved to Ireland. Worked there. I was into biking. So I actually just figured, hey, I'll get a job. I'll either work in an art museum there or I'll work in a bike shop. That was my thought process. Makes makes a lot of sense at the time, right? So I applied for a job. I, I think I went into the uh, Irish Museum of Modern Art, which is a really great spot over there. If you ever have a chance to go to Dublin, check it out. And I also went into a local bike shop near where I was staying. And the bike shop hired me. The museum didn't. So... Ended up fixing bikes for a year. And that's something that kind of progressed along in a few different locations. Yeah, exactly. After that, I moved to I moved to San Francisco and wasn't exactly sure what to do again. So I ended up working for another sort of bike shop down there. And, and on the side, uh, in college, I had been involved in a co-op teaching people how to fix bikes. Oh, okay. So there was nothing like that in San Francisco. And a few other sort of fellow graduates, we kind of looked around and said, well, we actually would love to fix our own bikes here, but there's no space like that. So we kind of had a meeting in one of our, you know, one of our uh, apartments and said, well, let's start it. So we asked around, eventually found a space and got a few donated tools and started up this place called the Bike Kitchen. 
And that's still around today. Still around today. And the cool thing about it is that it's 100% volunteer run. So no one ever got paid to do it. People just did it because they wanted to. And it actually turned out that I probably was working there 30 or 40 hours a week as a volunteer. So, you know, I was learning without even knowing it, learning how to run an organization, learning how to build community, learning how to manage people, learning how to manage budgets, all these things. I were just doing a nonprofit fixing bikes. But after I'd say two or three years, the interesting part of it stopped being the fixing bikes and started being how do you manage an organization? So what did you take from that? That people are motivated to do what they want to do. Because you got people doing a great job there, not because they were paid, but because they wanted to do something and because there was a certain sort of sense of community there. And I think that I learned later that's exactly the same in, in a business. I mean, people show to work because they're paid, but people do a good job because they're motivated to do it for whatever reasons around them. Because they want to learn something, because they like the people they work with, because they like the customers. There's all kinds of reasons. And people don't do things for the exact opposite reason. And what contributes to building community? It's a great question. Respecting people, having a common stated purpose, right? Having a mission statement that everyone understands what they're doing in a place and why they're there. I think that's one of the biggest things. And that's one of the things I think people forget when they start an organization. They know what it is, but they don't necessarily share it with other people. Sometimes I've found that large institutions in New York that are quite successful over time have a certain inertia to them and kind of lack that mission statement idea because they just sort of are popular by default. And I wonder if maybe some of the things that you had missed in your experience working at the Met, you found, you know, under your own kind of tutelage in a way. Yeah, it's, that's funny. It's a funny point because actually that's exactly what was missing when I worked at the Met was that sense of community. I had a bunch of other interns that were also there and there wasn't a sense of people sort of working together for something. Everyone was in their own departments and it wasn't the, it wasn't the, it wasn't the vibe that I think I was looking for, which was that sort of, we're working together to do this sort of thing. Uh, just under the sheer weight of the numbers, sometimes that can kind of fall away. And I yeah, think especially I think, in popular institutions. I think it's also maybe harder in a big city to find those things and, and to keep uh, those community together because it doesn't naturally occur. I think you have to work even harder when there's more things going on, more things to draw people away. And at the same time, the thing that's funny is I think people are searching for it more too, right? Especially now, yeah. I, I think. I, I think we kind of gave up on the idea that politics would supply us with a sense of like nationalistic community. Like nobody really believes that anymore. I think at one time people maybe thought that. I think people still believe it in France. Oh, okay. Well, you would know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we think about this, why aren't there more nonprofit organizations in France? Um, like the thing, like the idea of the bike kitchen, right? You don't need a bike kitchen in Paris because, well, there's actually a city-run organization that does a similar thing. The government supplies a lot of this sort of thing. They supply a lot more arts funding, supply a lot more social support for for people who need it, people who want it. So it's, it's interesting. The big, there's a big difference there. There's plenty of police presence when there's a march and protest. I found yeah, we've seen that they have, they have a nice like they have a nice uh, trucks, nice body body armor that they they sit around. You know, you know when there's going to be a protest in Paris because you have the entire street lined with uh, police, even if it's the circus performers protest movement. You live in Paris now, and and you source wines from Paris for Paris Wine Co. But how did what happened in between? You're working at the bike I kitchen. What segued into wine? Yeah, there is, there is a connection. Seems a little bit tenuous, but it did happen. So I was really into biking. And at one point, a friend of mine was moving to Paris to go to the Jacques Lecoq School of Movement. It's, uh, it's actually where all the people from Cirque du Soleil went to. Oh, it's okay. a really famous sort sure. of theater movement school back in the 60s and 70s. So she went there and we kind of like 
went on a, we organized a bike trip before she left with a few other friends. And we did a bike trip around Vancouver Island in Canada. We said, this is fantastic. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, biking around, what could be better? So we said, well, what could be better is biking around France. We should get paid for it. There's probably a company that'll do that. So I followed through. She ended up you know, not doing that. But uh, I applied to every company that led bike tours in France. And the one that hired me did bike and wine tours. You know, and on the interview, it was like, you know about wine? I was like, oh, yeah, there's red wine, there's white wine. <laughs> yeah, right, right. sparkling wine. You, if know, you put like, them together, there's rosé. Exactly. Right. My dad drank wine. So I, I know all about that. And, and the company... And they, how was your French at the time? Yeah, my French was terrible. It was actually completely non-existent. So Trey Mall, yeah, as I say. We ended up not, not on, the, on, the, on the interview, we ended up not speaking about wine, but we spoke a lot about art. So I was able to carry my own and sort of somewhat intelligent conversation. I feel like this has happened to you several times where yeah. you've gone to a job interview and talked about something else and it's like uh, you've hit it off with a person. I, I think this has happened at least three times. Or sort of a podcast interview when I'm supposed to talk about <laughs> why I'm talking about bikes art. Well, that happens too. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the guy, the guy said, well, I really like you. But the problem is you don't speak French. And I, I said, hey, if I learn French before the season starts, will you hire me? You didn't said, say sure. like, <laughs> like, eh? You didn't yeah. say like, I don't understand uh -huh. what you're saying? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, so I said that. So I, so I did it. So I, I, went to, I went to Toulouse. I took a one-month intensive class. I, I worked my butt off. And, uh, and then I called him a month later. And I said, hey, uh, I can speak enough French now to make it look like I speak French. So he said, okay, great. You're hired. So that summer, I basically showed up in, in Bone where the, all the guides were living in an apartment. And uh, I was given a bike and a bunch of uh, customers to take around and pretend like I knew a lot about wine. So I actually sort of applied myself and started learning as much as I could about wine. And luckily, I was in Burgundy, so I got to learn a lot about Burgundy, not a lot about other things. But you but did it, bike tours in Provence and the Loire and stuff. Yeah, I was also in the Loire, also in Provence. But living in Burgundy, you would you would go to parties and you would talk to other people, and people would bring you know, unlabeled bottles just with chalk on them, you know, marked mark like CM, you know, 08 or whatever it was, you know. Things like that, and you'd be like, "What's that? That, that doesn't have a label. That's got to be good." Which obviously everyone has that uh, reaction to to most things that are unlabeled, and uh, and it was fun asking around, and especially just kind of getting into the nitty gritty of all the different vineyards and all the history of the names of the places, and just the the beauty of being in Burgundy in the summertime is it's attractive, huh? You've been there. But what was the bike tour like, like as a guy? What was it like leading a bike tour? Yeah, you know, the first season it was really fun. Because we'd take people to these great restaurants, we'd go through uh, these beautiful vineyards, uh, we'd stop and taste wine, uh, we'd stay in these great hotels. And so it's just like being exposed to this, like, I guess this image in your head of what France is like to be there living on a vacation. And of course, you learn later that this is very constructed by the tour company to match with what people want. That side of France does exist, but you're really highlighting and bringing it out even more so that somebody on a tour for a week can have that experience that they want and have a great time. It's, it's, a, it's actually, it's a, it's a great setup and it's a great thing to do. But as I got sort of further and further into it, I was more and more interested in, in the wine and sort of in the wine business and less interested in the tourism business because the tourism business is, is repetitive. The same thing over and over. Every week after week, you have a new group, but you're doing the same route. You're doing the same thing. You're having the same conversations. And you have a lot of really, I mean, Overall, the people going on these tours are super interesting. They're super nice. You have a great reaction. But then you see them a week later, you never see them again. You so you I, never get that depth of conversation. You never get that depth of conversation. And, and you never really get to follow up with people and, and, and have that continuity. I guess, again, you're missing that sense of community, right? Which is something you can find when you visit a winery year after year. 
you can say Absolutely. like, I remember the 07 vintage, here yeah. we are with the 13. Absolutely. Or when you get, you know, fast forward ahead a few years, when you're working in the wine business and you have, uh, you're working with distributors or you're working with retailers who buy the wines year after year, who come visit, who come to Paris once or twice a year, and you actually get to know people and you can introduce them to somebody else. And one of the nice things about the wine business is people love to connect other people, right? So I'll always get emails. Oh, my friend is coming to Paris. You want to meet him for a drink? Of course I do. That's, that's part of my job, you know? I can attest to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's kind of how I know you, right? So anyway, so I'm in, so I'm in Burgundy. I did that for, you know, a, a season, right? Which is, you know, April to October. And there's no, no tours going on in, in November, December. And kind of wanted to stick around and do a harvest. That was in my head. Oh, it would be so fun to do a harvest. And I just had no connections and nothing. I didn't even know where to, where to ask. And I also had this sense that the places we were going on these tours, the people who are receiving groups of bike tourists, probably aren't making the best wine. I didn't know what the best wine was, but kind of had a sense that there's something else out there that I didn't quite have access to. So I came back to San Francisco. I kind of looked on Craigslist, uh, you know, wine job, uh, sales associate in the place that was hiring was, was Plump Jack Wine Merchants in the marina. Uh, I said, great, I'll go over there. Uh, I had an interview with Bayer. It turned out to be a very passionate cyclist. We talked about biking in Marin. We talked about biking in France. We talked about biking on weekday mornings versus you know, weekend mornings. And, you know, I was hired. I don't think he asked me a single question about wine, fortunately for me. How'd the, uh, the wine side go in your, in your year there? It was interesting. I didn't get to learn everything I wanted to learn there. I got to taste what they liked. I got to learn a lot about what sells based on reputation. It's a, it's a place where, where people go in and they kind of are looking for gifts for somebody else, or they're looking for something to bring to somebody for, for, a, for an evening. And a lot of that is, you know, champagnes with, uh, you know, with name recognition. Yellow uh, labels. <laughs> yellow labels, pink labels, blue labels, you know. Or else kind of like Colt California cab stuff. It was, uh, it was one of these shops that had some political connections. The owner was the ma- eventually the mayor of San Francisco. And so they had this, you know, whole storeroom of Colt Cabernet and people would come in and try to ask for it. And you'd always say, oh, I, actually, I can't sell it to you. You have to ask, you know somebody else and come back later. And I didn't really know what to do with this. And I was kind of eyeing the Italian section and the French section being like, oh, that looks interesting. What's that, you know, what's that bandole with a little boat on the label? That looks cool, you know, and, and, and things like that. And so I, you know, I'd buy a couple of bottles and, and taste things, but I didn't, I don't know, I didn't have the opportunity to really learn a ton. I got the opportunity to sell wine to people who came in, but really it was just sort of repeating what was there or what I thought that they wanted. But it also sounds like you were less drawn in on the California wine scene. Totally, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think at one point I went up to the Plump Jack Winery and tasted the wines. And it's another one of these things where I, I think originally I was drawn to wine by the, by the people side of it, by, by the stories, by the things. It wasn't like somebody was drawn to it just by tasting a bunch of things directly and had this sort of moment. I was, I was drawn in by the, by the cultural side of it. And so I think for me, the cultural side of Napa didn't resonate with me. You know, coming from somebody who started a bike co-op in San Francisco and was helping people fix their own bikes and was traveling around and and I, I didn't I guess I don't have I didn't have the same vision of what wine should be like as Napa Valley of circa 2000 circa 2005. You know, I think Napa Valley circa 1978 I think well, loved it. I'd love to go back to Napa Valley in 1976 or 1978 and hang out and see what's going on there. I bet it was awesome. Because both 2000 and 05 were times pre-recession, right? And That's they were kind of well. go-go yeah. times for those areas. Right. Absolutely. In a, in, a, in a somewhat flamboyant manner at times. 
I mean, not every property, but. Yeah. You know, I was in that construction of we're going to build these big tasting rooms and, and also coming from France where even in Burgundy, whatever place we went, whether it was good, whether it was not good, you know, you'd be going to somebody's home, you'd you know, walk down in a cellar, especially for somebody from, you know, young, impressionable American, you're like, wow, this is amazing. You know, in the same way, maybe that French people come to Napa and they're kind of like, I don't think they have the same, wow, this is amazing, but this is different from what we right, have at home. Right, right. This is you know? And this a lot is, of times those guys will be like, dude, I love this cake bread. Because it doesn't taste like what they have at home. Or they'll I mean? say, I love this experience right. of, of going around. I think, uh, you know, you also have the price thing where I think, I think French people are much, much uh, more reticent to spend, uh, you know, Napa sure. Valley prices on, on wine when they're used to a certain Well, it's not an aspirational point. thing as much, I think. It's what? not at all aspirational. You know, that, for the French, they're not like, oh, well, this is how I define my social class and stuff like that. No, not at all. It's, it's ingrained in the, in, in the culture that, that, I mean, wine was the same thing. It's, it, it occupies the same way like Budweiser does in, in some parts of the U S not all wine. You have this distinction between wine and fine wine in France, right? One is something to drink. One is something to be appreciated based on its sort of like on, on its qualities. And you have a lot of historically paid mortgages. These wineries in France have often, you know, they've, it's been passed down. So they don't have to like make that nut every month to like pay for this new vineyard, right. new, new winery that they just had constructed and landscaping that just happened and stuff right. like that. I mean, it's yeah. a big difference, I think, you yeah. know, in terms of eventual prices and just approach, you know. There's a whole number of things that are different between the cultural attitude in America and the cultural attitude in France towards winemaking, wine drinking. It's uh, it's very different. I think it's nice to see that I think more and more people in the U.S. are moving towards that French mentality. I think that's the trend now. It's away from the sort of aspirational winemaking and more towards this enjoyment winemaking. This uh, you know, just something to be enjoyed every day, something to get a sense of uh, a sense of place. Putting that putting that in there, you know, lower alcohol. I think the big you know the wine with food idea. Is something that historically was maybe not part of the uh, the American mentality, and now, in my mind, it's a good thing. It's becoming more and more. But there also seems to be a tourist difference. Like I don't see a lot of French tourists rolling into Burgundy, but I see a ton of American day trippers from San Francisco going to Napa. I see Napa encouraging it as a tourist destination. I think that affects the palate for the wines, because I think that when people who come aren't super sophisticated and then they buy. 20 cases of wine that's pretty obvious, whether that be through oak or alcohol or some other thing that's pretty noticeable right away because they can kind of latch onto that. I think that affects, whether subliminally or not, your approach to making wine because you're like, this sells. And then, you know. You have to go back a lot further, though, to understand the difference between buying at the Domaine in France and buying at the winery in, in America. And I think... In some ways, the French people are not jealous, but I think they should pay a little bit more attention to wine tourism and how it's developed in America. People go buy at the Domaine in France because it's cheaper. That's it. You don't go, like wine tasting as an activity is not something that people do as like a Saturday, hey, let's go out and go wine tasting and have a picnic at the winery. Like that's something that, that I think California very smartly developed. It's great. It works fantastic for the, for the domains. And helps them also sort of like build their own brand and and support their other distributors and restaurants and other people selling their stuff. Whereas what happens all the time in Paris is somebody will come into a wine shop in Paris 
pick your brains for half an hour, 45 minutes and be like, oh, great. That's awesome. Thanks so much. And then they go home, they call the winery, they drive out there and they like, they buy the wine because they know it's going to be cheaper. That's not always true, but it's, it's often true. And, uh, you have some producers in France that just don't sell to the public. That's often the, you know, it's in Burgundy, the higher, the people, the higher priced wines, people who don't need to sell to the public. But other people, they're they're really just selling uh, selling out the out the winery, and people come not as a tourist activity, but literally just to buy wine. It's like going shopping, which is probably also encouraged by neighboring countries with higher taxes who can come in and yeah, you do have a lot. I mean, you have a lot of Swiss people that come uh, over to over to uh, to Alsace or to or to Burgundy. A lot of Germans, uh, you know, a lot of Northern Europeans that'll that'll drive down to Italy for a vacation and they'll stop and. In France, on their way back, and and buy a bunch of wine. So, how did you get from not really feeling it for a California wine at Plump Jack to the next spot in terms of you and your wine evolution? Because it still feels like at that stage of the game, kind of young in the in the moves. Yeah, I was I was into the wine thing though. That's for sure. I like tasting stuff. I liked looking at books and learning a little bit, and and kind of I was definitely hooked on it. Right. I went back to France. I did a second season of bike tours. Again, I was kind of like, "Oh, it'd be great to do some sort of a some sort of a harvest or something like that," but still had no really way of of getting in there. I realized at the end, sort of halfway through that season, I was like, "You know, I think I don't want to do this again. I think I think I've done it. It's sort of like I was. I, it just felt like, you know, being in Groundhog Day or something like that, where you're going through the motions every day and it's sort of repeating itself. And you have a chance to start to meet people at the restaurants and the other guides and, and kind of get into that sort of thing, but." Kind of wanted to do to do something else. You mean the people that were running the restaurants? Yeah, exactly, exactly. People working in the restaurants, people working in the hotels, the other guides. Like that becomes the, the the fun part of the the job at that point. It's interacting with them. So I went back to California and I said, okay, well, I want another wine job. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, I was really into the bike kitchen at that point. I knew I wanted to devote a lot of time to that. So you go online and part time wine job, you know, and something pops up down the road for me. Wine buyer, uh, buy right market. I'd been to buy, I knew I lived around the corner from buy right. Didn't know a lot about it, but I always went there to buy, uh, whenever I had a barbecue, I'd go in there to buy meat because they had the best meat selection. You know, I wanted to buy organic meat and they were the only place in the mission at that point that really had a good selection. It's amazing you can have a good selection of meat and a good selection of wine in the same store coming from the New York market where that's impossible. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, well, you got to go to Byright. Yeah, right, <laughs> I just don't right. have one. Now there's a lot, and there's a lot in California. Well, the flight's only six hours, so yeah, I can but, still uh, make it for dinner. Yeah. Um, so I basically sent a cover letter. I, I wrote sort of a funny cover letter saying that I had been tasting wine in cellars in Burgundy, you know, and, and I think that was enough to get me a, to get me an interview. And uh, I showed up for this interview with the owner, uh, Sam Moganum, and uh, the two of us just hit it off. You know, I think the interview probably was two hours, three hours. I remember sitting there. I had something to do that evening. It was sort of the end of the day interview, and uh, the, the clock was facing me. You know, and he had his back to the clock. <laughs> I'm sort of looking, watching the sort of the hands go around and around and around. And I think after after a long time, I, I kind of said something like, you know, I I think maybe uh, you might need to go somewhere else. Or I another. He looked at the clock and oh my god, I got to get out of here! Like ran down the stairs. But the interview was sort of amazing because we we ended up talking not about wine, as you said before. We talked about we talked about community building. We talked about customer service. We talked about travel. Talked about all these things, and, and every time we, we talked about wine, you know, we say, "Well, what are the uh, what are the what are the grapes in uh, in Piedmont?" I'd be like, "I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know. I'll find out." 
And tomorrow I'll come back and I'll tell you all the grapes of Piedmont. No problem. You got any burgundy questions? Because yeah. I can answer those. That's exactly what I said. I was like, I know a lot about burgundy, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna tell you I know the answer to something I don't know. Um, well, that's also, I mean, that's a big thing. Being able to say you don't know in the wine business is a big thing. Being able to say you don't know, but I'll find out and I'll tell you. Right. I think that's the important thing, right? Because so, a lot of people are unable to do that, actually. Like a lot of people would rather flub, flub it and try to pass one over you than to say, like, actually, I, I'm not the expert on this. Right. So basically, we have this thing, and we talked a lot about, you know, I remember one of the questions was, was something like, when somebody returns a bottle here, uh, we always give them their money back, no matter what, no questions asked. They bring a bottle back. Of course, not of course, it doesn't matter. I was like, why do we do that? You know, you think about why do you do that? Because um, you want to let the wine. The, the answer is simple it's because you want them to come back. That relationship with the customer that's important. It's not the bottle of wine. That, that, I mean, that's one of the most important things about customer service. It's the relationship with the person that's the most important thing. So we talked about all these things, and, and I ended up I ended up getting the job. I was woefully underqualified, I would say. Ah, the other the other thing I did that I think still was, was intelligent. I, I still thank uh, Paul at, at Plump Jack for that. Is I hadn't talked to him for a year. You know, we had a we had a good relationship, but we weren't like best friends. When I got the interview at Byright, I went back. Uh, to Plump Jack and I, and I said, hey, Paul, I have this interview. Can I ask you a few questions so I sound like I know what I'm talking about a little bit? And uh, we talked a little bit and I said, Paul, what's the, uh, what should I ask to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about? He said, well, you should ask them if they pay their bills on time. That was actually great advice. That's a great advice. Great yeah. advice, right? For restaurants too, actually. Yeah. Too. He was like, when, he's like, and if they don't, you, if you're not sure, you might not want to work there. And that's something, I, that didn't even mean anything to me, I think until years later. When I got on the other side, right, and you really see the difference. I think even as like a young buyer, you don't necessarily realize how much that influences your relationships with people. With everything, with everything. you know, with the wines you can get, and with everything, with everything. And luckily, pirates amazing. They do. Every bill's paid on time, and I didn't. I, you know, I was in a position where I didn't really have to worry about managing cash flow and managing stock because because I it was basically don't buy too much, you know. Just buy what you buy what you can say. You know, if you buy something, you got to be able to sell it. So it wasn't one of those places where you bent over a list of SKUs like we got to move this out before no, we can. Not at all. It was le- every month. It was let's sit down, let's look at your purchases, let's look at your sales. If everything looks fine, there's no problem. Let's look at your inventory, and you know maybe it's just that I paid attention to it, so there never was a problem. I think those kind of environments tend to eventually, not every time, but they tend to bring about good lists. Yeah. You know that and, and frequent travel. Sure. Like from the employees. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's a good point. I did a lot of travel when I was there too. I was very supported by them, you know, to go and travel in France. I go up to Sonoma. I, I, I went to France, you know, two or three times a year, go visiting producers when I was working there. Of course, that changes your perspective. So anyway, so I, I got a job at Byright, started knowing, ap, you know, not absolutely nothing, but really not very much. Uh, it was a period of time when Byright was changing very rapidly as well. When I first started working there, they still had, you know, magnums of uh, James Arthur Field, right? Like, you know, cooking wine uh, in, in the store and like, you know, little like 187s of, uh, you know, of, of Vendange and stuff like this. And they had a giant sherry selection because Sam was a chef. So a, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the selection of the products there were, were meant for people who were cooking. At the same time, they also had Claude Rougeard on the shelf. At the same time, he was also a huge wine fan. I mean, they had Quintarelli, you know, like a, in like a corner grocery store. I mean... A very high-end corner grocery store, but something that didn't, from the outside did not look like a fine wine shop. So at the same time, he had this huge passion for wine. I don't want to make it look like everything was just you know cooking wine that was in the store. There was a good base 
of, uh, of wines to, to kind of start me off on the right path. And everything we talked about, we, for the first couple of weeks, we would taste together, or Liz, the store manager, uh, she would be in there and she would taste with me as well. And they'd be like, why, you know, why do you like this? Why don't you like it? What are you thinking? It was all about like, what would this go with? What would you eat this with? How's the acidity? Ah, this has good acidity. I mean, it's fresh. You can actually drink this bottle. You know, talking about these sorts of things, not just talking about, is it well-known or is it, or I like this so people should buy it. I think, why do you like this is a very powerful question in wine. Why is, you know, I know that you like it because it's easy to like things. It's also easy to dislike things, but why, why exactly do you think you dislike this? Or why do you like this? It's almost, it's, it's much easier to like or dislike than to tell you why, you know, right. I think. And so I got thrown to this really amazing mix where I was, you know, they already had a, uh, a really good selection of, of wine reps, I think, because they were one of those accounts that pays their bills that, that still was selling a decent amount of time. And because Sam had been in the restaurant industry for already, I think, 15 years. So a lot of people who were selling wine to buy right, you know, it wasn't their first time selling wine. They knew way more than I did. They knew way more than most people at the store did. And they were really generous in talking to me and not being like, oh, you don't know anything. You know, and I, I think I would ask questions and we'd have great discussions. And some of those people came to my wedding, you know, before I left San Francisco. The kind of guys that you say like, oh, I really like this Globe Rougeart. And then they say, oh, well, then you should also check this out. Yeah. Those exactly. guys. Right. Exactly. Whether they sell it or not. Right. Those are the really good people. But they want you to know more about what you're interested in. And those are the people you turn back to. So I learned a lot there. You know, I went to every single trade tasting that I could possibly get to. You know, I was going to like three or four trade tastings a week. You know, just everywhere, tasting everything, you know, and asking questions and doing all that sort of stuff. And little by little, just sort of like figuring out what it is that I liked, figuring out what it is that, 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 uh, that I enjoyed and started a couple of uh, like a monthly wine class for, for customers at a sort of a space that was across the street from Byright, where I would invite, you know, winemakers or people I had met to sort of talk a little bit about their wine. You know, we get 20 people together and enjoy the wines. It was fun. 20 people is a good amount to enjoy wine, I think. It's a good amount, yeah. And so we, we would do these things, and I think, you know, by right, the mission of the store was creating community through food. What was the mission of it? So you had this network of, of farmers, ranchers, cheesemakers, uh, winemakers who would come into the store all the time. You had a lot of people who worked in restaurants who would shop there because it was, you know, it was the best uh, selection of, uh, of produce that, you know, in San Francisco. It still is probably the best selection of produce in San Francisco. So it had this really amazing network of people. And you just chat with the customers and you learn who knows what just from talking to them. It was, it was super fun. You'd see the same people over and over. And then you go get a coffee on the corner. You run into the same people again down there. And then the people who work at the coffee shop would come in and, uh, you know, and buy some wine and ask you a question. And you get this thing. I think people in the, in the restaurant industry in, in San Francisco and New York, I think, have that some ways too, where there's this little community that's created where you go from one place to another where you know people. I mean, New York's a little big for it, but I've seen it in Boston and San Francisco, definitely. I think it definitely exists in, in New York. I think it tends to be stratified. Like, okay. I'm at the three star restaurant level. My buddies are in the oh, three yeah. and four star restaurant level. I'm in the natural wine scene. My buddies are in the natural wine Interesting. scene. Interesting. Like, yeah. I, uh, it's too big of a city where everyone just is bros. You actually don't actually meet a lot of people that aren't like you. Like, you see them, but you don't hang with them very often. Okay. I think that's just my read. People I, I, tend I to. I don't come know up. because I don't live in New York. I come here, you know, a couple times a year and, and try to catch up with people who have come to Parish or that I know. And, and I think maybe I have a, luckily, a sort of a, a funny, fun cross set of, of people who work in different parts of the You do. The yeah. Yeah. I think you do. Yeah. Because there's also an interest in what you're, you're doing from numerous kind of avenues for kind of different reasons. 
But I, one of the reasons I started this show was I was like, wow, it's amazing that those people don't know who that is. Like they don't, you know, you can be big in one kind of social scene and literally unheard of or almost vilified in another social scene because you're you're not known to it's very right. it's very uh, stratified yeah in san francisco i feel like we had we had all kinds of people coming in to buy right you know really worked at you know the restaurant thing people worked at all kinds of different restaurants coming in there all kinds of different shops all kinds of different backgrounds it was it was great um and also the people who worked there were very diverse employee groups and getting to know those people and helping sort of, I mean, I jumped in right away and was like, hey, I want to organize, you know, staff trips and things like that and try to build more of that community. And you know, a lot of other people were into that. I'd say diversity is a West Coast value, usually. Uh, it's kind of ingrained in the West Coast culture. Like that it, you, that you, it's a positive thing. Yeah, no, it's very much encouraged, I think. Oh. It's not necessarily, diversity is not necessary. Diversity happens in New York by nature of immigration and people moving to the city. But by it's nature not, of the city. It's not like a constantly reinforced to you by TV or books or... You know, it's been a long time since anyone in New York was like, dude, I was reading Maya Angelou and like Amy Tan the other day, you know, whereas I think you, you probably encounter that pretty frequently if you live in Berkeley. Or, yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's For maybe sure. I'm just talking about my little closed Upper East Side world. No, I think, but uh, I, I think there's something you know. to that. So I had that, that thing going on and I had, had an amazing time. I worked there for, for three years and learned a ton, ton about wine, ton about running a business, talking about managing people. You think it was a well-managed business? I think it's the best. I don't know if it's the best because I haven't seen every business, but especially having worked in other places and seen other places, you compa- I compare that, I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it's a, it's a model of how you should run a business. I know Sam was really influenced by Ari's Weinzweig at uh, Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor. Ari created a network of businesses, I think that was really influential, uh, where he would take people who had been working at one business who were promising and he would invest in them to start a neighboring business. So I think now they're up to eight or 10 different places and they're all managed by former employees of the other businesses. So it's a really pretty amazing community of businesses that they, they built there. And he's written a bunch of books about customer service. He literally wrote the book about customer service. So was it one of those places that was kind of like, if you take care of the top line of the customer, then the bottom line just sort of sorts itself out? I don't know if that was the mentality. I think the mentality at Byrite was viewing everything holistically. So viewing that like the part of your community is your customers, your employees, and your suppliers. And all those things are important to your business. And you have to take care of all of them. I think that was the that was the viewpoint. That combined with just good management, with not letting things slide, not going easy on people. It wasn't a place where like, oh, you did an okay job. Uh, oh, that's good. Just try better next time. It was like, if you're not doing a good job, this isn't the place for you. And a good job is clearly defined. What, what it means to do a good job for each role there was very clearly defined. And holding people to high standards is part of running a good business. It brings everybody up. From there, you ended up in Paris. And what happened? Yeah. I had a friend who moved to Paris. Him and his wife were documentary filmmakers. They'd finished making the, a documentary. And they, they moved to Paris for a year. That would be fun. And uh, before they, they left at a party, they met uh, a guy whose older brother had a restaurant in Paris called Spring. So Todd ended up, you know, in quotes, uh, working at Spring, which meant he was hanging out there in the afternoon, uh, shelling peas and peeling potatoes and stuff like that. And kind of hit it off with, uh, with Daniel, who was just starting this, this restaurant. And, you know, he had a... Daniel Rose. Daniel Rose, exactly. A Spring restaurant. He had, a, I think it was 16 seats. 
started, he was doing everything himself. He was cooking, he was washing the dishes, he was serving, he was shopping in the morning. And when it first started, it was amazing sort of ambiance and amazing food as well. You know, is this, this movement in Paris that a lot of people talk about, and Daniel was definitely at the forefront of taking same ingredients, same cooking techniques that you find at the two and three star restaurants, just making it chill, you know, putting it in plain, uh, you know, plain tables, just, you know, no, no fancy, uh, service just uh, just nice simple service nice simple setting great food and daniel had a lot of success with that i definitely heard about the restaurants um and he was an american guy he was an american that's a whole nother story but yeah he had moved to paris to study philosophy and ended up staying and going to culinary school and starting this restaurant and had, had a huge success based on the quality of the food and just the ambiance that he was able to create in the restaurant so he Knew he wanted to move to a larger space because that place wasn't big enough. And he found eventually a, a space in the first near near the Louvre. And uh, Todd had gone over to uh, to see him. And I had been to Paris and met him at a certain point. We had chatted a little bit about, you know, I was thinking of moving to Paris earlier. And he said, oh, it'd be great. We should open something together. It'd be awesome. And uh, so then like a year and a half later, Daniel basically sent Todd back from his trip to Paris with a little video of the new space, you know, a little tour of the, the raw space there and said, this is where we're moving to. It would be great if you came and, and, and did the wine program here. And it was kind of close to the Louvre, where they are now. Where they are now is uh, exactly on Rue Bayol. It's between the Louvre and Le Halle. So it's super centrally located. Like yeah. a lot of people are going through there. That's, that's so it's some... on like a little side street right next to one of the busiest intersections in Paris. So the actual restaurant itself, very few people would walk by it. But it's, where, it's very centrally located for anybody to get to. Exactly. So... I said, this is kind of an opportunity that mm, I don't think I've had before. I'm not sure this is going to come around again. Sounds interesting. I said, I, I'll do it. It was hard to leave by right. It was a good place to work. I think all the other people, managers that, are, that were there when I was there, they were all there before me, and they're all still there now. It's not common for people to leave. Which is always a big testimony to doing a good job. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, but I, I was really tempted to do this new thing. I decided to, to move to Paris, jump in the deep end. I mean, how many guys who grew up in Pennsylvania get a chance to go do the wine list at a Paris restaurant? I mean, yeah, especially a, a, a great Paris restaurant. You know, it's not just some restaurant someone's open in Paris. It's like, it's when it, you know, it, was, it had a reputation already and moving there, everyone knew it was going to be something, you know, a thing. So I had the opportunity to do that. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to take it. And why do you think Daniel picked you? Because <laughs> I was there. That's that's oftentimes his way of picking things. I think he's like what things that come for him. If he has a good feeling, he'll do it. I think he goes he goes on gut. I don't I don't think it was an informed decision on his part. I think it was just like oh you have kind of a good reputation, you know you seem like a nice guy. You obviously know wine. You have a good attitude. I know Todd. Todd knows you. Let's do it. I think that was it. Uh, we did spend about a year though talking. I went back to France. We um, we did a day trip together with with Daniel and his wife. We went to go visit Jean Montanet. In uh, in Vesle. I don't know if you've uh, if you've been there. That's a friend of yours. Yeah, he's a friend of mine, winemaker Domaine de la Cadette. Uh, I sold lots of his wines uh, at Bayreuth, and he'd come and done tastings with us. And I think that was sort of one of those moments where you have a great experience with somebody, right? And I sort of brought them there, and I think that trip maybe sort of solidified the thing as well. You know, we spent the afternoon sitting around in in in, in John's garden, you know, drinking all kinds of wine, uh, magnums. And it was hot outside; we couldn't go visit the vineyards because it was too hot. We had to sit in the shade great time i think that added to it as well so moved to paris had no idea what i was doing went from you know like recreating that restarting that same situation at at byright where there i didn't really know what i was doing show up in paris 
I never worked at a restaurant before in my life. What happened next? Well, I had a lot of time to figure it out because when I, I moved there about six months before the restaurant opened. So I had, I had a good amount of time to sort of ask around. And I just started doing that. I called producers that I knew, that I, that I had done tastings with or that I'd like their wines. Say, can I come visit you? I'd like to sell your wines at this restaurant when, when it opens. Uh, we also had a wine shop uh, next door, so I was also selling the wines at the, at the wine shop. And I tried to learn how do you buy wine in France. Super different than buying wine in the U.S. How so? When you buy wine in the U.S., it's very straightforward who you buy wine from, right? If you're a buyer at a shop or a restaurant and you want to buy, uh, let's say, Domaine de la Cadette, right? Well, you give it as an example. You find out who the distributor is, or if you don't know, you find the importer, you call them, they tell you who the distributor is, you call them, they'll send a sales rep over, they'll open a bottle for you, you get to try it, if you like it, you buy it. They're the person who sells it, very simple. Doesn't work that way in France. There's no, uh, there's no liquor laws. So it's really relationship-based. So every domain sort of functions differently. Let's say you're in a restaurant. You have different choices. You can buy direct from the domain. You can buy, sometimes the domain will have an agent in Paris and the agent will represent them. And the domain will pay that thing. And the agent just takes the orders and makes it easier for the domain, you know, to not have to worry about, about going and seeing the customers all the time. Sometimes the domain will have two agents in Paris. Sometimes they'll have three. Like competing, competing agents. Yeah, same agents selling the same wine, sometimes at the same price. Sometimes the agents will sell it at different prices because one of them will charge more for whatever reason. Um, sometimes, yeah, and you never know. Sometimes the domain will sell to you directly even if they have an agent because you call them and you don't know the agents at all. It's really relationship-driven. So you can buy from the, direct from the winery. You can buy from an agent. You can buy from a grossiste, which is like somebody who buys from domains and then resells it, right? In, in bulk. So you can order from the grossiste. You can order, uh, you know, six bottles of this and six bottles of that. If you order from the domain, you have to order full cases. Full cases. And oftentimes in France, the shipping is very expensive. So you can't just order 12 bottles of wine from a domain. You have to order, you know, 36 is kind of, you can order 24, but, you know, 36 is really the minimum. And to get a reasonable shipping rate, 60 is kind of the minimum. So you're ordering in bigger quantities and you're ordering less often if you're ordering from the domain. In addition to ordering from a grossiste, you can also, as a restaurant, you can buy from a wine shop. A lot of wine shops, a large part of their business is selling to restaurants because the attitude there, the thought process is, well, restaurants sell wine for more money so they can pay more for the bottles, which is the opposite of what happens a lot of times in the U.S. They say, oh, restaurants, they get the best pricing, buy the glass pricing. Doesn't exist in France. In France, they say, well, restaurants, you're going to charge more, so you should pay more. Sometimes, so you go back to the direct from the producer model, sometimes they'll have a price list. They'll have one price list for restaurants and another price list for uh, wine shops. Sometimes they'll just have one price. Every single person is different. And sometimes they'll operate on all these levels. So you, sometimes you could buy the same wine from 10 different people at 10 different prices. And this took me a long time to sort of wrap my head around. Especially the other thing being people don't really give samples the same way. Oh, is that true? It's not like people are running around with bags having you try stuff. They, they will, but a lot of times I would call somebody who's the agent. I'd get the agent's name from the winery, and I'd call them up, set up an appointment. They'd come by, and they'd have this little book with all the pages on it. They wouldn't even give you a price book, right? They would basically show up. This is like the old school Paris agent thing. They have this little like, like almost like a binder you know, with like transparent sheets inside, and they'll have the price list of all the domains on there. And they'll kind of flip through it and show you the different prices, and then you'll try to order something, and then they'll say, well, like, let me call the domain and see what's still available. 
and they don't want to leave anything with you. This is like the really old school model. Some people still do this. Some people will now have actual price lists. Well, they'll email them to you even. Because I've often found ordering wine in restaurants in Paris to be frustrating. This is part of the reason. Like that they don't have the stuff that's on the list or... Yeah, and part of it is because you place an order at a domain. And if the domain is like busy, you know, in the vineyards, they just might not ship it until they get around to it. So sometimes you, you order something and you might get it. Uh, I've gotten orders six months later. Shows up and I was like, what is this? And I call the, I call the domain. I'm like, I just got some wine from you. They're like, oh yeah, you ordered that in May. I was like, I, it would have been nice if you had called me. And yeah, like, yeah, you know yeah. you were shipping it because I refused it, you know? Right, right. Like, it showed up out of the blue. So there's this funny thing. It was just, it's really about developing relationships with different people uh, in, in France. So it sounds like you're often in situations where you could buy from person X or you could buy from person Y. And you're kind of like, yeah, I like person Y. That's exactly it. Yeah. And if you're in a restaurant, you know, and oftentimes, the, the, sometimes people in France, like person Y charges 10% more, but I'm just going to buy from them because I like them. Or because they have access to something else, because they're an agent for these different domains, and I know I want to buy some of this, and it's easier to work with one person. So you don't have so much you know, of somebody saying, well, I'm going to buy from them because they're five cents cheaper a bottle. Which is frequent in America, I think. That's absolutely frequent in America. And even in America, somebody would have one price. If somebody else changed their price, you would go over to the other person because they're charging less. And people just don't do that in France. It's not a cultural thing. Even if somebody else said, like, oh, we're doing a sale on this wine, you're paying that much. Somebody said, well, I buy it from them. And that would be very poorly seen. Like if there's multiple agents, like they kind of have their restaurants and they won't overstep or they're not supposed to overstep each other, right? And that's sort of understood. But all this stuff is unstated in France. I find that most things are unstated in Paris. Like most things that are affecting you at this moment. Like, oh yeah, this is when the traffic's terrible. Or like this is when the restaurant or store is just not open. It's just not open. Like, you know. Like, there's no sign, there's no hours posted. It's just, that's or, how it is. or, you know, it might be posted, but like, but, you know, that doesn't reflect what's happening right. with me standing in it's, front of the restaurant that's right. not open. That's completely true. Happens you all know. the time. Or the wine list is written this way and it doesn't reflect what actually is in the wine cellar, right? Yeah. Well, we went right. to a restaurant recently and there was a producer on there and they had three wines from that producer. And we were like, okay, we want this one. And he's like, we don't have that one. And he was like, oh, okay, well, I'll take either of these other two that from the same guy. And they're like, well, we don't have any of those. And like, you have three wines listed from this guy, and you don't have any of those. Not, not any of the three. Like, you know, and there's no mark or cross out or anything. You know, it's okay. just funny to me. I'm going to drop a pencil off of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. As an eraser and you teach know, him how to use it. I mean, I mean you know, it's a, I am also shocked by the level of, like, printing you know because here it's like desktop publishing is pretty simple you just hit reprint or whatever like sometimes you can go to a pretty nice restaurant in in france not like a you know a michelin three star or anything but they'll give you like some really cheap like xerox copy and you're like for the table yeah like here's one you know and you're like this is odd that you would give me something of such low print quality like is it that hard to have a printer and print you know i don't know it just seems odd to me but it's true yeah. I'm sure a lot of things here seem odd to them, you know. It's different values, you know. That's what it is. It's not what it's not also what the French customers value. They don't care if the things are bad printed. They care if the people pay attention to them, if they're attentive, if really they care if the food is good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, like, I care about that too. Right. It's just that if you're not going to see the guy much and then the moment you see him, you order the wine that you've thought about and then they don't have that wine or any of the others. You know, it's just frustrating. It just uh, like well, how I, I are you supposed a, to do this? I spent a lot of time griping about uh, wine service in France. So. <laughs> but I mean, I'm sure there are restaurants where it's great. 
I'm just there's a ton of restaurants where it's great. You know, I I think it's I think if we get back to that organizational, the idea of running an organization, I think people who are, I think there's a lot of chef-run restaurants in Paris. There's not a management team behind it, and there's no one who has experience. And so these things are often handed down, right? Like somebody opens a new restaurant in New York, they know how to do it because they were taught how to do it somewhere else. So they're they're coming, even if it's a new place, they're coming at it from some background where they understand how it should go. And in France, it's really stratified between these restaurants that are really established, you know, that have everything dialed in, and places where it's like, it's just a chef, and I cook great food, and I'm going to open a restaurant, I'm going to hire my friends, do the serving. And there's probably zero training. It's just like, go ahead, and just like walk over and, and serve people. Same thing with the wine list. It's like, you're in charge of the wine, so just do it. But there's not like a level, there's, there's no expectations that are set. And the servers probably make less money in Paris as a server than you would in New York, where you're absolutely. making tips. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're basically making minimum wage if you're serving at, the, at a restaurant. If you want to make money as a server in Paris, you work at a big brasserie, and actually you get paid based on your checks at those big places, you know, with the guys wearing the little, uh, you know, the black uh, Like black on the Champs-Élysées. Yeah, exactly. Those, those are the people who are making money, where they're, they're doing, you know, 1,000 covers a day or whatever, and they get whatever small. It's not the U.S. It's not your 20% tip. It's, they're getting like a very small percent of their, of their checks, but it adds up. And, Just by volume, it adds yeah. up. Yeah, and so if you're, a prof- if you're in the service industry for a long time in, in France and you're not like young and cool and just want to work with your friends, but you actually want to make some money, you, you end up working in those places, I think. And which is funny because oftentimes those places have really great service. Well, people seem to hustle. They yeah. seem to like try to you know, move yeah. things along. It's the old school bistros that have like the same guy who's been working there for 20 years. Those are the places that have great service in France or the top dining, you know, two, three star places. But to get back to the wine side for a second, it does seem like certain wineries or domains are very good at working the Paris scene, or at least that's how it strikes me, maybe because of the kind of restaurants that I pick when I go to Paris. But I see the same wines over and over again on the list, like Alexander Bond is on every list. And it's not always even French wines, like Hatsidakis. That dude's on a lot of lists. That's a Greek wine. You wouldn't think that they, you know, it's just like, wow, there it is again, hot sadakis. Yeah, there's a, there's like a, a trend effect that happens in uh, in Paris where something gets cool. I'm sure it happens in New York too, right? Something gets cool and then all of a sudden everyone wants to pour that wine. And that's how it works. And you, you'd, you'd wish that that maybe more people uh, would, would do the work and, and find more interesting things, especially being in France where there's so much stuff. But I think people end up being being the same, where they're buying from people that they know, so they end up hearing about the same things. They're in they're in the same circles. You know, there's this group of sort of like young hip restaurants in France. All these guys know each other, so they're all talking about the same wines. They're all buying from the same couple of agents. They're all going to the same tastings in France, and so there's this like circle of winemakers. A lot of times, the same winemakers are coming to Paris because they enjoy doing it, and so you get this this certain scene that that develops. And that said, there's a whole nother, there's, there's several scenes in Paris. There's, there's ones that are not in this sort of like natural wine scene. But the natural wine scene is very strong. It seems Paris. very strong. It's, I mean, like it's, tight. Like tight. It's the, I mean, that's, it's the, that's the homeland of natural wine, right? You talk to Pierre Breton, you say, why did you decide to be biodynamic? He says, because when I was going to visit Catherine in Paris, when we first started dating, she lived around the corner from a bar and we'd hang out there. And the guy was really into natural wine. And he talked my ear off. He said, you're a winemaker? Your dad has a vineyards. You got to make natural wine. That's why he did it. He didn't get the idea from from being in uh, in the Loire Valley. But it also seems like the growers are tight. I was in a winery recently, and they had pictures of the other dudes in that, oh, yeah. or They're, and females in that circle. You know, 
they hang. They're like, totally. They tight. make calendars with you know you're on August, I'm on April. Right. You know, Absolutely. it's a group. Like they support each other. So the reason I think there's that group is because for so long nobody was interested in natural wines. Right. They were saying you know when you go back what twenty years or something, and nobody wanted to buy these wines, and they were interested in making it. And so I think in order to survive, in order to have other people encourage what you're doing, you would organize these events where you invite similar thinking people to come and be with you. And you'd find the two or three restaurants in Paris who are into it. And they've done that for a long time. And now they've been really, you know, I think in, in a good way, being really successful at, at sort of making that hip, and making that cool and making more people sort of want to be interested in that. And that's due in a large part to a lot of these chefs in Paris promoting these wines and getting into it as well, I think. Because it seems to fit the vibe. I want a simple place with really good food, but yeah. no fancy service, simple tables. Like Le Servan would be another example of this that I happen to really like that I know you know well too, where yeah. food's just really good. The servers are not like captains of the old school. They're just young women who serve you efficiently and friendly. And, you know, the tables are just bare bones. It's just a wooden table. You use the same fork for every course. You have a steak knife. That's your knife. You know, it's as simple as can be. Keep your silverware. Yeah. Yeah, you keep your silverware. Like, if you try to give her the fork on the plate when she's clearing it, she'll yeah. take it off and put it back on the table. Like, you know, there's your fork, bro. Like, we're not giving you a new fork. Uh, and that's exactly what the what the vibe is of all these restaurants, which I, I love going to. You know, those are the places that I, that I tend to go to. I, I try to mix it up in Paris. I try to go to those, and I try to go to the old school places as well. Um, but that's also where I live. So there's the, the, all these other restaurants are located, uh, you know, in and around my neighborhood. But it seems uh, like where you live... You know, it seems like 10 and 11 are just full of restaurants that are in the younger model. Yeah, it, it attracts, you know, the people are attracted to be around other uh, other similar-minded places. And there's the the dining scene, probably like in New York, the dining scene is so strong in Paris that it, you can have a lot of restaurants right near each other, and those restaurants are all going to be full. If the restaurant is good, it's going to be full in Paris. So what was your experience working in a restaurant? I mean, what was it like for you? I think I didn't learn as much as I could because there was no one to teach me. We talk about that idea of things being handed down, right? Daniel, came, this is a chef-driven restaurant, like many of these restaurants. So I think Spring was from the same, the same thing, where Daniel, you know, he was cooking in kitchens, you know, two- and three-star uh, Michelin kitchens, and then he opened his restaurant. He happens to be a very gifted person in terms of service himself. He knows how to, he knows how to be charming. He knows how to serve people. He knows how to make him laugh. He, he has, uh, people talk about him working on the floor, like delivering dishes, opening yeah, bottles. He's fantastic. I mean, he has that great intuition where he knows what a table wants, even if they don't say it. What he doesn't know how to do is how to teach that, which is, that's totally normal. Most people who know how to do that sort of stuff. Just assume the other guys are going to have it. Yeah, they, they, don't, they don't know how to teach that. And I, I think, I, I, think I, have a, I have some of that, not to the same degree. I mean, Daniel's really a master at that. It's really, it's incredible to watch him like out on the floor you know, interacting with tables. And so I, I got to learn sort of by teaching myself a lot about wine, a lot about winemakers, but I never really worked on the floor as much as I thought I was going to at the beginning because it became obvious really quickly that Daniel didn't actually know how to teach me how to do what he wanted in the restaurant. Like he knew what he wanted, but he didn't know how to show me how to do it. And I knew that I didn't know how to do it either. So I would work in the restaurant occasionally, you know, I'd hang out at the bar, I'd do that. But it, it, it became pretty obvious that we needed somebody who had that experience coming from those sort of restaurants. So we went out and hired somebody to, to do that. But, uh, you know, at that point, I was kind of more into working in the wine shop. And so I ended up doing that more. Because Spring developed into a, a wine shop Well, there was two well. locations. Was when, when actually we opened the restaurant, there was a, there was, the whole idea was to have a, have a little boutique next door. So we signed the lease at the same time as the restaurant. That was always the idea. 
you know, in New York, a lot of times people are like, well, people from out of town usually don't fare as well in New York. There's some obvious exceptions, but it's interesting how like spring kind of caught a cultural moment where you had Americans cooking in Paris and it didn't seem to be a backlash against this idea that an American guy is going to come in and, and open a restaurant. We're going to go. I think they find it charming. The food is more French than most French restaurants. You know, Daniel's doing classic French dishes. And he's a great chef. I think people are open to good food. There, no, there's, there's not that thing of like, no, you're American. We're not, we're not, we're not interested in it. I, I don't, I, I think it helps him more than anything else. Helps him stand out in the market. Yeah, helps you stand out. Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't think he even needs it because just he's a, he's a great chef. So that's what people value more than anything else. So you were more interested in a retail model and then you started a direct-to-consumer business in terms of selling wine through Paris Wine Co. that would originally was focused at selling to consumers. Well, I guess I'm a retail guy. That's what I learned, right? I'm a retail guy. That's what I know. I love going to restaurants, but I, for whatever reason, you know, didn't end up uh, working the floor every night, which turns out to be a great thing for my my, my relationship with my wife. Uh, <laughs> I think, and then I, I, so I took what I knew, which was selling to people, selling to consumers, selling to, you know, Americans who are traveling to Paris. I said, well, I have all these wines, all these relationships. Ah, it'll be it'll be great. I can just uh, start selling them directly. I kind of was at a certain point ready to move on to spring. I, I just sort of looking towards the future. I saw you know Daniel and I talked about what he was interested in doing. I thought about what I was interested in doing, and you know they weren't really the same thing. Just be, it became obvious. So I said, okay, well I'm gonna I'll take off and I'll uh, I'll do this direct to consumer thing, and set this up. Spent a huge amount of energy sort of thinking about it and investigating it. And it turns out it's very hard to do for a number of reasons, most of which are just you know. American liquor laws, which are prohibitive. And I think you guys, you can talk about that, I think, with lots of people on this on this show. But it's still, you can't ignore them. They still exist. So it, it makes it very hard to do direct-to-consumer sales. But I, you know, I figured out a way to sort of make it happen and, uh, and started that out. And pretty quickly after that, I sort of got in touch with uh, somebody who was starting a distribution company in New York and said, hey, well, you seem to be in Paris knowing a couple of young producers. Uh, can you help me find some stuff? That's what he said to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's basically what happened. I think I think we got put in touch through a mutual friend, had a phone conversation, and I, I I was kind of thinking about this in the back of my head the whole time as well. Like I knew that was out there that there were people who were agents and 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 things, but I still didn't really know a lot about distribution side of of the business. Uh, I knew way more about it than I ever had because I had people coming to Spring where I got to meet tons of people. Because it was all, kind of a stop on the grand tour. It was a like, stop on the grand restaurant tour of Paris. Exactly. If, you, if you're an American dude and you're in Paris for a few days, Spring was probably one of the restaurants you were going to go. Exactly. So I had this great network uh, built up, not of best friends, but people I'd been in touch with, I could ask questions to. And we got in touch with, uh, I was talking about Mike Fook at, at, at MFW. And we had a phone conversation when, when he was getting started. And I said, well, there's these wineries, there's one domain I've been talking to. I've been thinking about helping them sell wines. You'd be interested. And maybe I could find a few other things too. And Mike said, yeah, of course. So I started that. And then, you know, things kind of roll along. And, and I'm realizing, well, actually, the thing for me is I'm closer to the producers. So my strength and what I actually bring to the table is knowing the producers and helping and knowing the U.S. market as well. There's a lot of people out there who can sell direct to consumer. I don't bring anything particularly new to that, to that business. But I can bring something new to the direct to trade business. And in addition to that, I can help the producers sell much larger quantities of wine. You know, you're doing direct to consumer, you sell 10 cases. Woo, awesome. You know, and you get into the 
direct-to-trade thing. You're selling pallets. That's what producers need if they want to keep making wine every year. Producers tend to notice the pallets leaving yeah. a little more. Than so them. again, you get back to this thing of like, how do you develop deep relationships with people? That's a way to develop deep relationships with people. And it's something that goes on over and over and over and over and over. That's the nice thing about relationships with people in the business is they last a long time if you take care of them. That's great. And it also seems like increasing interest in America in this kind of Paris neo-bistro thing and this real sense that, well, I mean, if we just knew who it was, there probably is some young superstar that we just don't know about in yeah, everyone, French wine. Everyone wants the next new thing, right? That's the other thing I've learned is there is intense competition among importers to get the next new thing. It, it's and what there. does that look like? It looks like you heard about somebody that nobody else has heard about and you call them up and you go there and then they're like, oh yeah, I was contacted six months ago by so-and-so. You're like, well, I, how come you didn't mention that before? Yeah, I don't know. They don't, they don't actually think, they don't understand the exclusivity thing because it's not part of the French market. You really have to explain it to them and all the importers do, of course. And for better or worse, producers tend to sign up with the first person to talk to them. Not always the best move for them, but it's, it's what people tend to do. It tends to be just a race to get to the get to the people first. And it does seem like there's a race on. Like there, it does seem like there's an interest in the American market for absolutely. these wines. And that's not the part that I really enjoy, feeling like it's a race. Because I think what I learned working in France is there's a lot of reasons to take your time, especially in the wine. Wise business is not a business that moves quickly. It's a business that moves slowly on purpose. You know, you place an order with people a lot of times. You'll say, I'm going to order these wines now, and you can deliver them to me in six months. That's common in France. People do it that way. That's not an American thing to do, right? In America, it's like, hey, I'm going to order this and can it be here tomorrow? Or actually yesterday would be even better. Uh, that's, not, that's not how it works in France. And I, I, I learned a lot of lessons from that. And I would love that to be the case, but it's not. It's still this, it's, it's this race. What are the benefits of moving slowly? You have time to think. The producer has time to think if everyone were to move a, a bit slower. Is this really the right fit for me? Are there other options? As an, as an importer, you know what? Their neighbor might make better wine. And I didn't take time to go see their neighbor because I was so worried about signing up that one producer. And maybe their neighbor was a better fit for me. I don't know. Because I ran into it. And, you know, you make a relationship with someone. And I, I don't know how other people do it. But I, 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 you know, I commit to somebody and I want to work with them for a long time. So you, get, you dive deep into it. And you have 30 producers now. What was it like building that portfolio? At the beginning, it was kind of smoke and mirrors, like starting any business, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to sell all this wine for you. It's going to be great. Uh, I have one guy who's just starting a company in New York. You know, but I, I did have a, I already knew a lot of people, so I had some sort of relationship with, with, with people. So I, I did that. I called people. I explained as honestly as I could what I was doing, what I was planning to do, which is sort of like, you know, slowly build relationships with young winemakers in France or the next generation of, of, of good winemakers, introduce them to sort of a next generation of, of distributors and, and customers here and uh, work on long-term building of, of their brand, help them grow as they want to over time. I don't come into anybody and say, hey, I can sell 50 containers a year for you. I can't do that. But I, for me, it was really about finding people who I thought made great wine, who sort of fit with the, the program, which is like everyone's looking for now, low, you know, minimal intervention, Tending to organic, not necessarily organic, but uh, you know, making things with less additives and less sulfur and less alcohol and, and all these things that I think a lot of people are looking for right now, which that's the, that's the zeitgeist right of the wine time right now. And, um, and just slowly asking them if they knew other people who'd be interested and you sort of build things little, bit, little by little. 
part of it was just finding out what was out there. And part of it was also sort of coming up with a list of, well, I should have wines from these regions. And then just doing all the research I could to find, uh, you know, to find a wine from the Rhone, to find a wine from the Southern Rhone, from Provence, from the Languedoc, from, you know, from all over to have a balanced offer to, to work with. Sometimes when I've talked to importers, it's felt like the producers themselves introduced them to the other good producers. Like there was key people that were like, oh, yeah, well, you should also, if you like my wines, I'm sure you like my friends down the road. You know, of course, that's the best way. It's the best way because you're not calling someone blind. You know, you call them, say, hey, I'm calling because Levy told me about your wines. And they say, oh, Levy told me about wines. Oh, well, you must actually, uh, you know. Usually they hang up at that point, I found. So that's usually right. Right. Click, click. <laughs> but, you know, there's already sort of an assumption that you must be doing a good job if that person talked to you about it. So it makes the whole conversation easier. It's always good to have an intro. It's, you know, it's like, you know, it's the same thing as selling wine in a market, right? You always want an intro. So how many producers do you have to visit to build a portfolio of 30 producers? What does that look like? Is that 500 visits? What is that, what is that in reality? How much time is that on, in terms of visiting domains? Uh, when I first started out, I would do a lot of visiting. I would, you know, I'd go to the trade fairs as well and, and try to catch people there. When I first started, it was wines that I already knew. So I didn't have to like, go out and visit stuff. After that, I did a lot of, a lot of investigation. You know, you'd, you'd call people, you'd look at other wine shops, you'd look at other importers in other countries, all these things that I'm sure all the other importers do to try to find stuff. And, you know, I, sometimes if I didn't have a good feeling on somebody, I'd ask them to send me samples uh, to try to see whether it was worth visiting them or not. And sometimes I would just have a good feeling and just go for it. I, I have a pretty good hit rate. Usually if I didn't work with someone, it was because they were already signed up. That said, a good hit rate is like 50%, right? That's a good hit rate. If you're going to find new producers. That sounds like a great hit rate to me. Yeah. Like, you know, in terms of like loving stuff, I yeah. don't usually love half of what, you know, the, what I, what's new. To yeah. Me, you know, um, and it also depends on the regions. I've had, I've had better luck in some regions than I've had better luck in the Loire for some reason than in the, in the Jura, for example, I went to the Jura recently. I kind of struck out just things I set up just didn't, didn't work, didn't fall in, you know, my impression of Jura tastings where they brought everyone over and you taste the wines that are not imported is usually there's a reason. Yeah. Like, you know, you're tasting through and you're like, wow, this is really good and imported. Yeah. You know, there, w there wasn't a lot where I was like, oh, that's that hidden gem. Yeah. It's also kind of a small region, I think. Yeah, you know, it's a very not... small region. There was a big wave of like that becoming cool. You know, like the Beaujolais before that, everyone sort of rushed in and was like, who's making awesome wine? And uh, so everyone got scooped up. And, you know, new producers don't come up very often. Good right. new producers, you have what? You have one every five or six years that decides to start making wine. You know, it's not like it's not like people are rushing into the Jura wine market to make it big. Well, some are. Some but. <laughs> are, but I mean, producer-wise, you know, you don't have. It's, it's hard. It's not hard. It's not easy to start a winery. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time, especially before you actually have wine to sell and it's good and has a style. You know, it's a, a lot of work. So you know, in certain regions, I've just been I've been luckier than others, and I'm always keeping my keeping my ears open. So, what are the regions that have really worked out for you besides the Loire? Loire. I had some. I had some great luck in Champagne, to be honest. Especially yeah, in the Aube. Yeah, Rupert Loire. Yeah, Rupert Loire is a complete just being in the right place at the right time. And I, I happened to have. I had an appointment somewhere else that same morning. The night before, I went out to. I went out to eat and walking out the restaurant, I kind of you know you always glance at the bottles to see what you don't know. I was like, I'd never seen that thing before. I know all those other ones on the shelf. Those all look good, but I don't know that one. So the next morning, I you know look up their number, say, hey, I, I might have I have a little bit of time later this morning. Can I stop by? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Turns out they just released their first wine ever, 
They never they hadn't sold any wine to Paris. They'd only sold it to uh, Au Crier des Vins in Troyes, which is where I, where I saw it. I just happened to be there before some other. It could have been some other. Import. But that's the really good wine bar, right? Absolutely, that's Crier, the place, Crier right? in Troyes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the first natural wine bar in France, actually. It's, I mean, they kind of started the natural wine bar trend. So I knew that if it was there, it was probably, you know, at least interesting and worth checking out. So yeah, I went there and, and sort of had a good, uh, good interaction with, uh, with, with Benedict and with her, with her father, uh, stayed for lunch. And I, I pushed really hard because you taste something and sometimes you're like, oh, that's good. Let me think about it. And knowing the speed it works at, you know, I, I, I'm not like a big, well-funded person, but I was like, you know, these are great. Uh, I'll, what do you want to sell to the U.S.? I'll buy it. Like, I'll write you a check tomorrow. Just, I mean, like I tasted it, it was just like, this is, this is gold. You know, this is one of the best things I've tried in, in years. I did that and I called Mike up at, at MFW and I said, hey, Mike, uh, you're going to work with this producer because I just bought a ballot. I got an <laughs> yeah, idea like, for you. I was like, you don't get to taste it. You're going to work with What me. are you doing next Thursday? Exactly. Selling this champagne is yeah. the correct answer. <laughs> so I did that, but it's like, I, I don't do that very often. So I think he heard me. He was like, great. I'm super excited. And you also have a really good cider producer. The Joanna Sessione. That's another sort of just dumb luck kind of thing where you friend of a friend of a friend of a friend uh, knows a winemaker and, uh, and, and they come around. So a friend of mine uh, grew up in Houston. It all starts in Houston, of course. And um, one of his friends, you know, we went to college together. We, we were mates. And then afterwards, he, he moved back to Houston and, and had a circle of friends there. And this woman, Nancy, grew up in Houston. They were, they were good buddies. Afterwards, Nancy ended up moving to San Francisco. She met a guy who was from the Northern Rhone there who was working in California at a, at a winery and uh, they decided to get married and actually move back to the Northern Rhone and start making wine. Turns out his family's been making wine in the Northern Rhone for 14 generations. This so, is your San Joseph guy. This is Julien Session. Exactly. So they moved back there. Uh, unfortunately, they had already, the family had sold all the, all the vineyards because nobody wanted to make wine at, at the time. Julian wasn't interested when he was younger when that transition was happening. So they, you know, purchased a vineyard. And anyway, we got in touch uh, through each other. They came, they came to my house in Paris. You know, we had lunch together. We tasted their wine. And Julian was like, oh, you know, my, my older brother is uh, married a woman from uh, Brittany. And, uh, and they make cider. You want to try it? Yeah, of course. Try it. Awesome. Signed up. Package deal. You know, two for the price of one. So that's what happened. One of the things you've done is work with different importer and distributors in New York. What have been some of the key relationships and why did you choose a group of importers and distributors rather than just working with one? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have a great answer to it and I think it's an interesting question. It, it really just happened organically. I think the reason is because I'm in France, not in New York, and my customers are distributors. So I do a lot of, I can find way more producers. It's way easier for me to find wines than it is to find distributors. So when distributors come my way, I want to have enough things for them to have. So it started out with Mike, with MFW. And at a certain point, they were a young company. And they were kind of saturated, you know, with what, with what they could sell. But I had, I had these other great wines. So I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it. And I, I didn't go out, like, sending emails out. I was just, I, I didn't, no, I didn't do, I didn't, like, put ads up or I didn't call anybody. I didn't, I didn't, I'm still learning how the distribution network works. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not one of these guys who's been in it for years and knows the guy in, in California and Colorado and Oregon and uh, in, you know, in Texas and all this stuff. I, I still don't know those people. I'm trying to get to know them, but I, I don't, I'm trying to get to know the right ones who are interested in what I'm doing. But, um, so Mike came first. So they had a very, Mike was, you know, he, he used to sell the Dresdner wines and uh, he's really into the natural wines. So it was really like, what's the cool Paris natural wine kind of stuff. That's really what I think they were looking for. And that was their original focus. They branched out and they have a sort of a broader selection now. But that was the original thing. And then, you know, about 
maybe six months later, I, I've always been in touch with a guy named Tim Allentenny, who's been a, a really a really good friend and helped me out a lot. And Tim knows a lot of people in the, in the wine business. And, and so um, he got to know a guy named Eric Clemens, who started a distribution company called Cure Imports. And Eric doesn't speak French. Uh, he doesn't really have, didn't really have time to go to France. And Tim put us in touch. And Eric said, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this company. And I need some French wines to sell because I love French wines. Uh, let's do it up. And I said, okay, that's my mission. Find, you know, basically like make your French book. Cool. Like making a wine list, but on a much bigger scale, right? Fun. So Eric and I talked about what he kind of needed. I had some ideas and we came up with this list and, and I spent, uh, you know, probably a good four months uh, really looking and, and putting together uh, wines for him. That happened. So that, that came next. Just sort of happened, right? And then, uh, then I started working with Verity. Same thing. It just kind of happened. But that's got to be on a just a different style than Clemens or Folk, where those were startups. Faraday has been around for five years. So it's a totally. much different company. What actually happened there is um, Patrick, uh, you probably know Patrick Capiello. One of my good friends. Yeah. <laughs> so Patrick was in, was in Paris with my friend Daniel Eddy, uh, who was a sous chef at Spring. So they, they, were, uh, they were hanging out. And there was, I think they were there with a few other people as well. And uh, I was like... I'd heard a lot about Patrick from mutual friends. We'd met once at Pearl and Ash. And I said, Daniel, hey. From the, from the famous podcast that he was on a couple times. Exactly, exactly. So I kind of pushed Daniel. I was like, hey, you know, I'd really like to invite Patrick over and uh, have him taste some of these wines that I'm trying to sell in New York because it'd be great to have him in Pearl and Ash. So, um, so, so Patrick and Daniel came over. We opened you know, a table full of wine and tasting everything. And, uh, and it turns out he was there with, uh, with Chris from, from Verity. And they were like, we love all these wines. You know, but, but they kind of explained to me that the Renegade project that they were working on and said they really wanted to work with some of the wines, which ones aren't imported. And I was like, well, these are all kind of imported. That's the point. I'm trying to sell you some wine. Um, but there was one or two that Cider actually just happened to have open because Julien Session was at my house the day before. Dumb luck, right? Happened to be open. They tasted that. They're like, oh my God, it's fantastic. We love this. Same thing with the this, this San Joseph. They were ready to jump on it. And I said, you know what? We got to take her. Let's, let's do it. So that's the situation we're in now. And I think... What, it's a hard thing to explain to customers, right? I think the distributors get it. And I, I was talking to Mike Fook about this this morning, is how do I make sure that buyers in restaurants and in, in retail stores, they understand what I'm doing and that why does that make sense? Because it's not a model that, that they're used to. They don't understand that model, right? How so? I think they understand the model of like importer in the US, goes to France, picks a wine, brings it in. That's their- Kermit. What Kermit, Kermit. does. That, that, that's their funnel for the wine getting into, into the U.S. market, right? I'm the funnel, but I'm in, I'm in Paris. So the advantage of that is that I think I have a, maybe a, I'm, I'm definitely closer to the producers. I have an advantage to keep up with them more often, go visit them, find out from friends, go to tastings, find out what's new, check things out, all these things I have. I have that's my advantage is, is that I'm there and that I understand both markets. I can explain to the producers what goes on in America and I explain to Americans what goes on in France. And I think people are, maybe you, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, but people are maybe skeptical of that. They feel like there's an extra markup in there, right? I think this is the fear that, that, that I have. Well, I think certain people are really being very vocal now about trying to eliminate a tier. And, Absolutely. And how that benefits the consumer. Sure. A lot of people are. And there's obviously all this pressure on the three-tier system. We can talk about that another, another day, right? But what I guess I want people to know is, it actually, it doesn't add to it because my margin is much less than an importer margin, to be honest. 
It is. So there's basically no importer margin. And oftentimes it's the producer who's paying me the fee to help them sell their wine. So that's Which my, is something I think a lot of people don't know. People it's don't the producer that. who pays the agent often. Absolutely. Like the, yeah. The broker. I, right. Absolutely. I'm working, I, I work for both people, right? I mean, I, I'm the matchmaker. So, but in, but most of the time it's the producer who's, who's paying me, who's paying my fee. So I put my name on there because I want people to associate the quality of wine that I sell with my selection and to understand that. But knowing that some of it will come from here and some of it will come from there, um, and also it, it, it enlarges the network, I guess. I, there's positives and negatives to it. You know, maybe if I was 20 years into the business, I would have done things differently, but that's how I did. And, and I guess I would just say that I'm really lucky to work with the people I do because they're really passionate about it. And I think they're all doing a great job. That's what I would say. And what's life like in Paris? I mean, do you like it? You wake up every day, you know, you go get... You go get croissants. Croissant. Then, I mean, yeah, what's, go, the re- go, what's the reality? Swimming in the sand. Yeah. I mean, know? versus growing up in Pennsylvania, living in San Francisco, you know, you live briefly Par- in New York. I mean, what's Paris like? What's it like as a wine agent in Paris? You know, Paris is a, it's a beautiful city. It's a lot like New York where you have everything. Where some days you're like, oh my God, the sun's out and I can't believe how gorgeous it is. And then other days you're like, oh my God, what am I doing here? It's crazy. And like, you know, someone steps on your foot and then like you miss the subway and, you know, whatever happens and you're just like, this is nuts to be here. I think you have both in Paris. It just, it sort of depends on your mood, what you get out of it. I love living there. We live in a great neighborhood. Uh, You know, in the 11th, there's a lot of energy there. We live right by a beautiful little park. I think Paris is, is an easy city to live in. Because there's so much support, you know, you, so many museums you can go to in terms of, you know, we have a family now. There's so much support for uh, for kids. It's a lot easier to have a kid in Paris than it is in New York. I, I don't have one in New York, but I just talking to other people. Oh, my God. It's crazy. So there's all there's all this, uh, kind of support from from the state that makes makes living in the in the city easier. And that's and that's cool. I think the cost of living is probably lower in Paris, um, even if this things are sort of the same price. It's, it's well until you go out to eat at a restaurant. And then- yeah. Then yeah. you're like, oh my god, dude, this is really expensive. Where? You know, Where like in Paris. No, in in Paris. You know, I went to the airport in Charles de Gaulle, and I I went to the cheap place, like the place where you serve yourself, you sit down in like cafeteria style seating. Oh yeah, I got some like you know master walk style oh, noodles. It was thirty five dollars. Yeah, it was thirty five dollars yeah. for lunch. I yeah. was like, this is expensive, bro. Like that's a lot of money, you know. I don't know. I guess it works out in the end, right? It's a balance. So I, I love it. I, I miss a little bit of, of the green space. I love living in San Francisco, being able to go on your bike and go over the Golden Gate Bridge and be a Marin, go hiking and biking and have the ocean and all that stuff. I miss that. I miss that. But I love the, I love the vibe in, in Paris right now. It's good, it's good energy. Uh, young people moving there, people doing that. I miss, of the U.S., I miss the diversity. We talked about diversity earlier. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being able to go get Indian food and get sushi and get Thai food. And, you know, Paris, you, the French food is great. Not so much on the Chinese. French food is great. I've heard that the Vietnamese food is good. Is that true or is that just a rumor? It's the best in France. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the best you can get in France. You know, I was in I was in Paris and in Burgundy, and it was the longest period of time that I'd ever gone in my entire life that I can remember where I never had pasta or rice. It was like an over two-week period where oh, I, yeah. I, ne- I didn't eat pasta or rice at a single meal. The funny thing about Burgundy is actually the the... the some of the best Japanese restaurants are in Bone, are in Burgundy. I've it's, heard that rumor. It's true because there's, there's so many Japanese people who move to Burgundy for the wine trade. That you actually you have you have a couple great Japanese restaurants in in Bone. So you're also involved with a distributor in California. 
Yeah, called Mission Wine Merchants, which just launched in July. What's that like? It gives me a lot of perspective on working with distributors because it shows me the other side. Because you're a partner in a distributor. I'm a partner in, in Mission Wine Merchants. Basically what happened is after sort of developing these relationships with all these winemakers and working with distributors in New York, I kind of took a step back and said, oh my God, I have like a full portfolio now. I didn't even mean to do it. So we should bring this to California. I already had the existing relationship with Byright, so I'd worked there. So I, I shipped some samples over to, to the buyer over there and said, these are great. Let's bring some in. So we, you know, we did a little bit of business that way, shipped them right over. And eventually I thought maybe I'll find a distributor in California. And then kind of one thing led to another. And I was like, you know, I probably have a lot of connections. If I could find a partner there who has the sales connections and is responsible and will do a good job, I could probably start my own company with somebody else. So kind of hunted around a little bit, asked around, and ended up finding, uh, finding J.P. Webb, who used to sell me wine when I was at Byright. One of the sales reps I was talking about, who taught me a lot, I always liked working with, became a friend. And so I, I asked J.P., hey, are you ready to move on and do something else? He said, absolutely. I've been waiting for this call. So we got together in, you know, in January and then again in April, and then we decided to do it. So we basically have a bunch of wine on the water right now, headed to California. We have a few things there already. And we'll be expanding. The goal is to do not just French wine, but to bring over domestic stuff, to bring in Italian, German, Portugal, wherever, all around, all around the world. Everything that fits with that same, that same program, you know, good wines. So what did you see on the other side of the coin being in the distributor market? You just understand distributors tend to move fairly slowly in terms of purchasing, uh, in terms of planning out. You know, distributors tend to work six months ahead minimum. Right, because you, you wine takes a while to get here, and that has to be paid for. So people talk about now. It's too late to talk about uh, December bringing something in for the fourth quarter. Forget it. People are now talking about what they're going to buy in February next year for distributors. You know, you have a good six months lead time from when you buy something. And I was always like, I guess that makes sense. And now that I'm on the other side, I was like, Oh yeah, I understand that. Totally understand that. So just understanding what my distributors' needs are for Paris Wine Company it helps me a ton. California is also one of those markets where it seems like the Wild West, kind of like Paris, where it's like, not a lot of regulation. It is the Wild West. You still have that typically you have one sole source for each wine. You know, that's not legal as it is in New York, but that's typically how it happens in California. Um, so you have that, but you have a lot more flexibility in terms of pricing, right? Everyone likes to wheel and deal in California. But the business is the same. You're building relationships. You're bringing people wines. And what's it like for you to go outside of the French market? I mean, is that a big learning curve to be I'm like, not sure that I'll be doing that. I think we're going to try to find other means. You know? Oh, I see. You know, we're going to try to find a, a you know, somebody who has a portfolio of of German wine or who has Italian wine. That that's the idea. That said, I'm in Paris. It's not that hard, it's not that far for me to go to Italy or go somewhere else and I I'm not really looking for more French producers. My disadvantage is I don't speak German, I don't speak Italian. I don't have the same cultural knowledge that I do of French producers, but that could be fun to learn. Josh Adler of the Paris Wine Co. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks, Larry. Josh Adler, Paris Wine Company. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. 
You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.